I, honestly, I, you've heard me say this before, one of my absolute favorite things I get to do and be a part of as a pastor. You get to hear and see people's stories and life change, and it really is amazing. So I'm so grateful again for all of you being here. I am going to dismiss our kickstart, our fourth and fifth graders. I remembered. There you go. See? You can teach old dog new tricks, I, I promise. So, But uh, it really is just uh, amazing to be a part of people's faith journeys, and I'm so glad to have all of you here uh, for that. Now, before we get into our message today, though, I do have a little bit of family news that I did want to share um, with all of you, that this past Monday, uh, Andy Williams, a, a longtime all-in member here at Livingstone's Church, passed away at Goshen Hospital. And... Uh, uh, Andy, his wife Susie, and the Williams family, they've been uh, members of Living Stones for a very long time, and it was a sad day on Monday to say goodbye to Andy, um, a great friend, great man of God, and uh, Andy was one of those guys who like, did not know a stranger at all. He could carry on a conversation with a brick wall, and it would be highly entertaining. You know, like, I, and that's not a cut. Like, I mean, like, that, he just had that kind of personality where he could just literally talk to absolutely anybody, and he's going to be greatly missed, and I consider it an honor uh, to have known him. Uh, just so you know, there's going to be a visitation this coming Thursday from 5 o'clock until 8 o'clock at Willowdale Avenue Church of Christ in Elkhart, and then the service will be on Saturday at noon at River of Life Church in Elkhart. All the details of this is... Um, in your stone's throw that came out this past Friday, and it's also going to be on our social media um, this coming week as well. But for um, Susie, the Williams family, too many of, of you guys to all name, I, I just want you to know that we love you. We love your family and are incredibly grateful for you. I want you to know that we're praying for you. We're walking alongside you right now through all this. And if there is anything that we can do um, for your family at all, all you need to do is ask. And I just want to say thank you for sharing your husband. Thank you for sharing your father, your uncle, your grandfather, for sharing him with us. Like, we are better for having known him. And I just want to tell you guys, thank you for that. LSC, make sure that you show the Williams family some love um, this week and just let them know that you are there for them and praying for them. We love you guys. So we are in the middle of a series that we have been calling LSC Wrestling. And we're taking a look at some of the areas, some of the issues in life, some of the issues in Scripture where where we, we often find a, a, a struggle, where, where things don't always fit nice and neat into a little box. Sometimes there's times where Scripture talks about things, and, and it almost seems like they're, they're, it's giving contradictory thoughts, contradictory ideas in, in that. And how do we as believers, how do we as followers of Jesus, how do we faithfully live out this, this thing called life with some of these topics? And, and our theme verse for this series um, is actually, I, I've been using from the message paraphrase, it's 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where the Apostle Paul writes, he says, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it as clearly as God sees it, knowing him directly, just as he knows us. That there are things in, in our life where we don't see clearly, that, that we see with, with human fleshly eyes, and we don't see exactly as God sees them. And so there is a struggle. There is a, a wrestling that does take place. And, and there's lots of areas that don't necessarily fit into a nice, neat box for us. And, and, and we have to be able to be okay, to be comfortable, to contend, to wrestle, 
to struggle through some of these things. And, and this morning, we're going to take a look at how do we interact with those who are outside of the faith, those that, the, those that may disagree with us, or, or even those who are in the faith but are, are living a life that maybe seems opposed to what Scripture teaches. Like, how do we do, how do we live out what 1 John tells us about living in the world but not being of the world? Because there are times where the Bible seems to give two contradictory explanations of, of how do we live and how do we interact with, with this world in, in, in a world where, where so much is hostile towards the things of God. And I, I could give you countless examples on both sides of, of this, but I'm going to highlight two just on each side. The first one comes from the Old Testament where the psalmist writes in Psalm 26, verses 4 and 5, the psalmist says, I do not sit with the deceitful nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers, and I refuse to sit with the wicked. And th this would appear entirely consistent with Jewish cultural norms at the time. In an effort to stay pure, to, they would refrain from associating, hanging around, being with others that, that they felt um, did not believe like they did. They felt that they were unclean, the, the, the Gentiles, those that done, did not keep the law. The goal was to not interact with them at all. But then again, we also see the Apostle Paul talking about this a little bit in the New Testament as well. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, he's addressing someone in the Corinthian church who has been involved in some unrepentant sexual sin. And there's a lot more to unpack, and I'm not going to go through all of it right now. So for the sake of time, in, in a nutshell... Paul tells the Corinthian church that you should actually kick him out of the church, that you should not associate with him at all. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, the apostle Paul writes, I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. This seems kind of harsh. You know, like where, where the psalmist is talking about refusing to interact with those outside the faith, Paul's talking about what do we do with somebody who is a believer but is continuing to live in sin. In fact, Paul doesn't just say to kick them out. He, the, his direct quote is to turn them over to Satan. And, and this, this seems in a way to fly in, in the face of the way that Jesus taught and the way that he practiced how to interact with those Around him, we, we see Jesus communing and, and engaging with, with outcasts and the marginalized and those of ill repute all the time. In Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, it says, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. And there were many, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, they knew the scriptures. All right, we're not supposed to associate with people like that. And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus always seemed to go out of his way to find people who, were, who, who at the time were considered sinners. And he wouldn't just be with them, he would eat with them. 
He would talk with them. He would engage with them. He would spend time with them. He purposely stayed away from the people at the time that, that appeared righteous, that appeared to have it all together. And instead, he chose to hang out with those who were living lives that seemed opposed to the things of God. There, there's a line of thinking in Christian circles that we need to, we need to set people straight. We need, we need to stop them from sinning. We need, we need to have people change their ways so that they can start honoring God. And, and, and truthfully, yes, of course, we want to see lives change. We want to see people living lives that, that are honoring to the Lord. But the sad reality is that this kind of mindset can be so destructive in so many ways. Because one of the things that, that it can easily do is it leads to legalistic behavior modification rather than addressing genuine heart change. It leads to this us versus them mentality where, we're at, where we feel like we're at war with those who act, who think, who believe differently than we do. And it goes against how Jesus lived in the example that he set. The, the most famous scripture in, in, the, in the Bible, John 3.16, the, the scripture, that, the verse that immediately follows it in John 3.17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But, but God is holy. God, God is just. God hates sin. He hates what sin does to his people. And this is where the tension is. This is where that, that tension is, the struggle, the wrestling between grace and truth. When, when Jesus found and, and engaged with the woman who was caught in adultery, he showed her tremendous grace by forgiving her sins, by, by, by exempting her from the, the, the punishment that the law said was due to her. But yet he also told her the truth when he said, I want you to go and I want you to sin no more. You have been wrong, but go and sin no more. And, and there's this amazing tension between grace and truth that, that those of us that are followers of Jesus, we strive to manage, we strive to wrestle with this tension. And, and in Paul's letter to the Roman church, he rebukes this idea that because God has shown us such tremendous grace that we can go on living however we want. I, I'm trying to show you, like, it, it, it seems like there's just these, these different uh, avenues at play here. And in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Well, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? We joined him in his death. For we, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. The grace of God is not a, a blank check in order for us to just go on living however we want to live. Like when, when, when we start to see how heinous our sin really is and how amazing God's grace is, it, it motivates us to change the way that we live. But it all starts with the heart. It doesn't start with our actions. It doesn't start with, with trying to fix the external. It always begins with the internal. And we ought to follow Jesus' example about he, how he reached and how he loved and how he engaged with those around him, especially those that were, that were maybe hostile, maybe, maybe living apart from the things of God. And so the first point, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, is that Jesus was a friend of sinners. 
Jesus was a friend of sinners. Luke 7.34 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, this is Jesus speaking right here, and he says, And you say, here is a glutton, here is a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus in this moment, he's kind of mocking his critics. That they're accusing him of being a, a glutton. They're accusing him of being a drunkard. And they call him a friend of, of tax collectors and sinners as if it was a pejorative. But he acknowledged the statement as, as fact. That he was a, fa- a friend of sinners. So much so that he went out of his way to be around them. There, there was something that was so appealing. Something that was so engaging about Jesus. That even those who were far from God, far, far from God, sought him out. Those that were far from God wanted to be near, wanted to be around him. And he didn't shut them out. He didn't turn them away. He didn't shun them for the way that they were living their lives. He went out of his way to befriend them. He went out of his way to engage, to talk, to get to know them. Jesus is, is our example that we ought to follow it. And, and he didn't condone their sin. He didn't, Jesus didn't participate in their sin. But he was relationally close to those who were considered ungodly. He was relationally close to those that were considered ungodly. And, and so for us, what, what does that look like? How, how do we follow Jesus' example? And so there's a couple things I want to share this morning. The first one is that we integrate, don't isolate. We integrate with those around us. We don't isolate. And, it, and it's easy for us to create our own Christian bubbles. Back when I lived in Milwaukee, the church we were a part of, we, we had our church softball leagues, and we had our church volleyball leagues, and we played against other churches and other believers, and, and we used to get mad when other churches would bring guys in that didn't go to their church, but they were great softball players, and they brought these ringers in, and, and you got mad at it, at them for it. But then there, there's, there's Christian business directories, Christian bookstores, even though there's not a lot of them any, anymore. There's, there's Christian schools, and, and there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those. Not, not at all. But it can become very easy for us to live life without ever having to actually relate to non-believers, without ever actually having to interact and get to know and get our hands dirty with people that maybe don't believe like we do. And it becomes very easy for us to think that we are being godly in the process. Paul, he was the greatest missionary of all time. He planted and started churches throughout the, the known Mediterranean world, and he, and he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and in this, he shared part of how, how he went about engaging in a culture that was very hostile towards the things of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19, he says, Though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Like, Paul didn't isolate himself. He integrated himself into 
into the culture. And this was the, this was the example that Jesus set, that Jesus didn't isolate himself either. Jesus did not command that, that people or demand that people came to him. In fact, he went out of his way to invite himself into the lives of those around him. And in so doing, this doesn't mean that we have to compromise our convictions in order to be a friend of sinners. But it does mean that we have to intentionally engage with other people on their level. That we have to intentionally engage with people where they're at. Now, now the next aspect of Jesus' ministry that I think we can learn from is that we can be a friend, or we, we ought to be a friend of sinners, not just friendly to sinners. Be a friend of sinners, not just friendly to sinners. And, and I think it's worth noting here that Jesus wasn't just friendly to those who didn't believe, but he actually befriended them. He actually engaged with them. He invited himself into their world, and they invited him into theirs. He was, he was invited to weddings. He was invited to parties. He was invited to dinner gatherings. And when we interact and when we befriend only people who believe like us, it can communicate often non-verbally that only believers have value, that we diminish the image of God that is present in every person, that regardless of, of their belief, when we set ourselves up as morally superior to those around us. It's anti-gospel to, to the core. Every single person has intrinsic value because they are made and created in the image and likeness of God. And, and we can't diminish nor put conditions on the love of those that we offer. We can't, let me, let me rethink how to say that. We can't diminish nor put conditions on the love that we show to others who we may disagree with. I came across a quote from Zach Lambert. He's a pastor of a, of a church down in Texas. And he said it like this. He said, love God, love one another. Love your neighbor, love your enemy. That about covers it. In Christ's meticulous census, the community exempt from the love of Christians has a population of exactly zero. In Romans 12, Paul teaches us that, that love must be genuine. It must be sincere, not just, not just being friendly, but actually offering genuine and authentic friendship to others. And, and, and this last one is probably the most important one of all, is that we be a friend and share the gospel. Be a friend and share the gospel. It's imperative that our friendships and our relationships with non-believers be genuine and real and authentic, not simply a means to an end. I'm just being honest with you. Like when, when I first committed my life to Christ, when I, I was a young man, I was 18 years old, and I can't tell you the number of times that I was told to become friends with non-believers so that I could share the gospel with them and get them saved. Like that, that was the motivation. That's what I was told. All right, you need to engage with your college friends so that you can share the gospel with them and get them saved. And rather than befriending non-believers so that we can share the gospel, we ought to befriend non-believers and share the gospel. And when we, befriend, when we befriend people so that we can accomplish something, we turn people into projects. All right, I'm, I'm just trying to work on you. I'm just trying to, to do something for you, even if our motivation is good, even if our, even if our motives are right. It, it's kind of a, a bait and switch. It's a cheap sales technique in a way. 
where we offer friendship, we, we kind of dangle a carrot out in front of somebody when our real goal is to get something else, even if sharing the gospel is the goal. Even if we, yeah, we want what's best for, for those around us. We want what's best for those that maybe don't believe like we do. But that shouldn't be our sole motivation for doing so. Again, coming back to this idea that every person is made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore they are infinitely valuable. That we can come to a place where we recognize that every single person is fascinating, has a beautiful and compelling story. And if we can learn to treat people the way that God does, as as recipients of grace, and befriend them because the love of God compels us to love everybody, and that the grace of God in our lives has transformed us into a person that is intimately interested in other people, not just as a means to an end. That sharing the gospel becomes just a natural part of relationship. It's not a sales pitch. It's not a cheap sales technique. No, it's something that we actually live out. Jesus talked about this. We said, "When when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. There wasn't an ulterior motive. He said, whatever you do to the least of these, it's like you are doing it unto me. And so I want, I want to close with, with a final thought here, that the way that we befriend, the way that we treat people around us is what God uses to bring others to him. Now, I want to be clear. There, there is a place for calling out sin. There is. There, there is a place for having hard and having difficult conversations. But all of those need to be done within the context of love and relationship. And I love the way that Romans 2 speaks about God's heart towards people and towards sin. In Romans 2, 4 it says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The way the New Living Translation says it is, Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That that God's kindness to us, the way that we show kindness to others, the way that we show compassion towards others, is actually the vehicle by which God uses to draw people towards repentance. The way that we treat others, especially those who may have an opposing viewpoint. Many of you may remember, this is a number of years ago, there was a, a big controversy with Chick-fil-A, where, where Chick-fil-A um, had, is run by the Kathy family. Um, the Kathy family are very devout Christian believers, and, and through, through the Kathy family, Chick-fil-A had been supporting and donating financially to numerous, quote-unquote, anti-gay organizations. And this prompted a, a huge backlash from the LGBTQ community, and there were protests around the country at different Chick-fil-A restaurants. Now, I, I, I want you to know, like, this is not a message about whether or not homosexuality is or is not a sin. That's a topic for a different time. That, that's not what I'm, I'm addressing right here in this moment. But I wanted to share something beautiful that actually came out of this controversy. If you can actually put the picture up on the screen. Um, Dan Cathy, who was the the COO and the chairman of Chick-fil-A, he reached out 
to one of the most prominent pro-gay activists in the country. His name was Shane Windmeyer. And he was the, he's the, he was the executive director of Campus Pride. And I want to read to you a, a column that Shane Windmeyer wrote about his relationship with Dan Cathy, two people who were diametrically opposed to one another, who, who had very different views about what was good, what was healthy, what was right. And, and I, want, I want to share this with you. It's a little bit longer, so I want you just to bear with me. I brought my glasses out because I'm going to be reading a lot. And this is, this is Shane Winmeyer writing here. He says, I spent New Year's Eve at the red-blooded All-American epicenter of college football at the Chick-fil-A Bowl next to Dan Cathy as his personal guest. It was among one of the most unexpected moments of my life. Yes, after months of personal phone calls, text messages, and in-person meetings, I am coming out in a new way as a friend of Chick-fil-A's president and COO, Dan Cathy, and I'm nervous about it. I've come to know him in Chick-fil-A in ways that I would have never thought possible when I started hearing from LGBT students about their concerns about the chicken chain's giving practices. For many, of this, for many, this news of friendship may be shocking. After all, I'm an out 40-year-old gay man and a lifelong activist for equality. I'm the founder and executive director of Campus Pride, the leading na national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and ally college students. Just seven months ago, our organization advanced a national campaign against Chick-fil-A for the millions of dollars it donated to anti-LGBT organizations and divisive political groups that work each day to harm hardworking LGBT young people, adults, and families. I've spent quite a lot of time being angry at and deeply distrustful of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. If he had his way, my husband of 18 years and I would never be legally married. Why now was I standing next to him at one of the most popular football showdowns? How could I dare think to have a relationship with a man and a company that had advocated against who I am, who would take apart my family in the name of traditional marriage, whose voice and views represented exactly the opposite of those of the students for whom I advocate every day? Dan is the problem, and Chick-fil-A is the enemy, right? Like most LGBT people, I was provoked by Dan's public opposition to marriage equality and his company's problematic giving history. I had the background and the history on him, so I thought. And I had my own preconceived notions about who he was. I knew his character. No way did he know me. This was my view, but it was flawed. For nearly a decade now, my organization, Campus Pride, has been on the ground with student leaders protesting Chick-fil-A campuses across the country. I have researched Chick-fil-A's nearly $5 million in funding, giving, excuse me, in funding given since 2003 to anti-LGBT groups, and the whole nation was aware that Dan was guilty as charged in his support of a biblical definition of marriage. What more was there to know? On August 10th, 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from Dan Cathy. He had gotten my cell phone number from a mutual business contact serving campus groups. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear into me, right? Give me a piece of his mind, turn his lawyers on me. The first call lasted over an hour, and the private conversation led to more calls the next week and the week after. Dan Cathy knew how to text, and he would reach out to me with new questions when they came to mind. This was not going to be a typical turn of events. His questions and a series of deeper conversations ultimately led to a number of in-person meetings with Dan and representatives from Chick-fil-A. He, had never, he never, had never before had such dialogue with any member of the LGBT community. It was awkward at times, 
but always genuine and kind. It is not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask the campus pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns and the real-life accounts from youth about the negative impact that Chick-fil-A was having on the campus climate and safety at colleges across the country. Through all this, Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and the funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and to hear my perspective. He and I were committed to a better understanding of one another. Our mutual hope was to find common ground, if possible, and to build respect no matter what. We learned about each other as people with opposing views, not as opposing people. Throughout the conversation, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ rather than just a Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. And in that, we had great commonality. We were each entirely ourselves. We both wanted to be respected and for others to understand our views. Neither of us could or would change. Dan in his heart is... I'm, I'm sorry, I know this is long, but... this. Dan in his heart is driven by his desire to minister to others and had to choose to continue our relationship throughout the controversy. He had to both hold on to his beliefs and welcome me into them. He had to face the issue of respecting my viewpoints in life even while not being able to reconcile them with his belief system. He defined this to me as the blessing of growth. He expanded his world without abandoning it, and I did as well. As Dan and I grew through mutual dialogue and respect, he invited me to be his personal guest on New Year's Eve at the Chick-fil-A Bowl. This was an event that Campus Pride and others had planned to protest. Had I been played, seduced into his billionaire's life? No. It was Dan who took great risk in inviting me. He stood in face of the ire of his conservative base and a potential boycott by being seen and photographed with an, with an LGBT activist. He could have been portrayed as caving into the gay agenda by welcoming me. But instead, he stood next to me most of the night, putting respect ahead of fear. There we were on the sidelines, Dan, his wife, his family and friends, and I, all enjoying the game. And this is why building a relationship with someone I thought I would never understand mattered. Our world, as different as they can be, could coexist peacefully. The millions of college football fans watching the game never could have imagined what was playing out right in front of them. Gay and straight, liberal and conservative, activist and evangelist, we could stand together in our difference and in our respect. How much better would the world be if we could all do the same? Even as Campus Pride and so many in the community protested Chick-fil-A and its funding of groups like Family Research Council, Eagle Forum, and Exodus International, the funding of these groups had already stopped. Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A could have noted this publicly earlier, but instead they chose to be patient, to engage in private dialogue, to reach understanding and to share proof with me when it was official. There was no caving, there was no concessions. This was, in my view, conscience. This is why after discussions with Dan and Chick-fil-A, Campus Pride suspended our campaign. Like Dan, we had faith. It took time to be, it took time to be proven publicly. Now, 
It is all about the future, one defined, let's hope, by continued mutual respect. I will not change my views, and Dan will likely not change his. But we can continue to listen, to learn, and to appreciate the blessing of growth that happens when we know each other better. I hope that our nation's political leaders and campus leaders might do the same. And in the end, it's not about eating or eating a certain, chick, a certain chicken sandwich. It's about sitting at a table together, sharing our views as human beings engaged in real, respectful, civil dialogue. Dan would probably call this act the biblical definition of hospitality. I would call it human decency. So long as we are all at the same table and talking, does it matter what we call it and what we eat? And I thought, man, like what a, what a beautiful description of what Jesus tried to demonstrate. That Dan Cathy, he wasn't going to change his views. Shane wasn't going to change his views either. But they could still sit down. They could still engage with one another. And I believe this is how Jesus would respond. But that's not the end of the story. Like, we don't know how the story is fully going to play out. We don't know how it's going to close out. But in the end, this is demonstrating the love of Christ. Valuing each other as human beings. Being willing to be vulnerable. Being willing to hear an opposing viewpoint. Being willing to build a friendship without an agenda. And trusting God with the results. I believe that's what Jesus would do. What Dan Cathy called the blessing of growth, that we could grow together with those around us, even with those who disagree, even those who may not be like us. So I just want to issue a challenge. I, I, I'm just going to be fully, fully transparent with you. As I, as I was putting this message together, I thought to myself, how many people am I engaged with that are not a part of the church culture? Like being a pastor, I'm around church people most of the time. And I haven't done a very good job of going out and trying to engage, purposely engage, with people who don't believe like I do. For people who, who think differently, act differently, believe differently. And I was heavily convicted by it. Of wanting to put myself in possibly uncomfortable positions because it's what Jesus would do. And, and I, I just want to ask all of us that, that same thing. Would, would we be willing to be uncomfortable? Would we be willing to be vulnerable with people that aren't like us? Would we be willing to, 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 to show what, what Dan Cathy talked about, the blessing of growth, even if it's awkward, even if it's hard, even if it's uncomfortable? Treating others the way that Jesus would and trusting God with the results afterwards. Not with an agenda, but because it's what Jesus would do. I'm going to invite the, the band to come forward. If you would bow your heads, and let me just pray for us as a, as a church family right now. The Father, we, we thank you, God, so much for who you are. We thank you, God, for your incredible, incredible love. God, that you demonstrated for, for each one of us, Lord. We, we thank you, God, that, that, we, that, that you came and found us, Lord, that when we didn't have it all together, Lord, when, we, when we've been a mess, when we weren't doing it all right, Lord, that you stepped into our world. And God, you made a way. 
You connected with us. You, you, you found us. You reached us. You, you have uh, worked in, uh, in our lives, Lord, and it is your kindness that draws us to repentance. It's your kindness that, that draws us away from our former life. And God, I, I pray for all of us as, as a church family, God, that you would help us to, to be highly intentional and highly purposeful about reaching out, about connecting with people that are not like us, people that maybe don't believe like us, that, that, we, that we would be able to, to reach out, not, not as, a, as a mission project, but just because we love them, because, because they are made in your image, God, and, and, and that they have intrinsic value, Lord, that you would help us to see all the people around us in that same way, in that same manner. Not as projects to work on, but people who are made in the image of God, who are valuable, who are worthy of dignity and love and respect, regardless of their life situations. And God, that through it, God, that you would help us to shine your light. God, you would help us to demonstrate what it means to be a, a faithful follower of Jesus. God, that we would be okay with the uncomfortableness that comes with, with that growth. God, we just want to thank you, God, for being so very good to us. I ask that you would just lead and guide us as we seek to love people the way that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.